Like you said, tonight we're continuing our study through 2 Timothy, and we're actually finishing off chapter 3 tonight with verses 14 through 17, so turn with me there uh, if you haven't already. But if you remember, we've been in chapter 3 for a couple weeks, actually since the new year, and so far in chapter 3 we've been talking about the last days that we're living in, and we've been talking about the perilous times that are on their way, the perilous times that are a part of the last days. And we've been talking about the state of our world and kind of how the Bible describes its progression into the future. And last week, Nick walked us through the importance of of enduring through those perilous times. And so he talked about the godliness that we should be pursuing. You remember the the picture of physical fitness and how godliness is our spiritual physical fitness um, that's that's required for us to endure. You know, you want to endure running a race, you have to build up your physical strength to run a race. You want to endure... Uh, the, the last days and perilous times, well, you have to build up that spiritual fitness in godliness. Well, tonight we're really going to hone in on the most critical aspect of our endurance, and because, because tonight we're talking about the sufficiency in the last days and having sufficiency, because God has actually given us everything we need to make sure that we're enduring these perilous times. And so he's provided sufficiency for us, so we don't have to go looking around for how to endure, because he gave us what we need. So tonight, we're just going to focus on how we can make sure we're staying godly while the rest of the world only gets worse, the way the Bible describes. Because remember, uh, we left off last week with 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, which says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So that's the way the world's headed. It's getting worse and worse. And so if you're, if you're looking for our world to improve, Well, you're kind of looking for the wrong thing. The Bible's clear that the world is only going to get worse as time goes on, and he'll eventually fix it, but only after he returns, and he'll be the one to fix it. But until then, the actual state of the world is one of decay, and it's going to stay that way into the future. But despite that, we can endure and and we can succeed despite that decay of the rest of the world. And so after describing the continuous decline of the world the way Paul did in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 13. Uh, He contrasts our condition with what he says to Timothy in the remainder of the chapter. So read with me in verses 14 through 17. Um, He tells Timothy, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, but knowing knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so again, you notice verse 14 starts with, but continue thou. So the but contrasts everything else Paul has said up until this point. So he's describing the way the world works, but he's telling Timothy, look, this is how you should continue. And you continue in the things that you've learned. So even though the world continues on its path of decline and destruction, man, we can continue on our path of growth and godliness like we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. We have a job to do as this world declines. And even though that job gets harder and harder as time goes on, we've been given what we need to continue growing stronger so we can endure and succeed even in the most difficult of times. So tonight we'll see that Paul gives Timothy the key to what he should be doing while the world's getting worse and worse. And from that, we'll see what we should be doing too. So let's pray and let's dig in. 
God, I thank you for this section of verses and, man, everything that it communicates to us and the encouragement that we should feel from, from the fact that you've given us what we need. And so, Lord, I pray that as we investigate that fact that you've given us what we need, that we'd be encouraged by that and we'd be strengthened and emboldened to, to do our jobs and to make sure we're allowing you into our life to guide and direct us every day. In your name we pray, amen. amen. All right, so let's dig into point number one, which is what we see in verses 14 and 15, and that's the pursuit of maturity. And remember, Paul tells Timothy, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells Timothy to continue in the things that he's learned. So we clearly see the importance of learning things, and if that sounds simple, that's because it is. He references the fact that Timothy has been learning those things from the Holy Scriptures since he was a child. So we see the importance of continued learning as we grow, both as people and as Christians. Because learning is critical to our growth. Psalm 119 verse 7 says, I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. So learning what the Lord says leads to praising the Lord. We can't miss that connection. Learning the Bible isn't just about knowing cool things. It's about having the right heart attitude towards the world and towards life and towards what God says. We see in Romans 16 that learning actually helps you avoid bad doctrine. Romans 16 verse 17 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. And so if you want to avoid believing bad doctrine, well, you have to learn good biblical doctrine. Otherwise, you'll just believe whatever someone else tells you to believe. And that learning has to come from the Holy Scriptures. Otherwise, you're just learning what someone else says instead of what God says. That's the difference between good and bad doctrine. Where is it coming from? And that's what lets you be assured of what you're learning, the way Paul is telling Timothy to continue in in what he's learned and been assured of. It's actually what allows you to know who you're actually learning from, because, yes, we learn from good, solid, or we learn good, solid doctrine from human Bible teachers and our, and our spiritual leaders all the time, but the only way you know that it's sound doctrine is because they don't just tell you what's true. They show you what's true from God's Word. That's why it's so important for us to learn from the Holy Scriptures the way Paul credits Timothy with doing here in verses 14 and 15. Because the more you learn about the truth, well, the easier it is to spot the lies. Because the lies are only increasing. Remember, the evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And if you want to avoid being deceived, well, you fill your mind with the truth. And the only place you can get the truth is from the Holy Scriptures. Now, at the time when Paul wrote this to Timothy, the Holy Scriptures that Timothy had were what we would call today the Old Testament. Uh, Romans 1 verse 2 makes that pretty clear for us. It says, which he had promised afore, by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, referring to the things that the prophets wrote. And that makes sense because what we now call the New Testament was still being written, like, like the letter we're reading from that, that was sent in the mail to Timothy. That became part of the New Testament. But for us today, the Holy Scriptures just include everything written in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. And we can know that the New Testament is Scripture because Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture in Second Peter Chapter 3, uh, verses 15 and 16, says, In an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So he's talking about the fact that Paul wrote, uh, wrote about salvation. 
to the people that Peter is writing to. And verse 16 says, as also in all his epistles, so in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So just in case you thought Paul was just telling Timothy to continue on what he's learned from the Old Testament, just breathe for a second, because when we commit to learn sound doctrine, we learn from the Holy Scriptures that God has given to us, which is both the Old and New Testaments. And so Peter even says that Paul's letters were Scripture. Um, And so even at the time, there was an understanding that Paul, an apostle of Christ, was writing, and his letters were Scripture, and they became canonized in the New Testament. But Timothy was learning scriptures from when he was a child, and we saw that at the beginning of 2 Timothy. If you remember way back in June, if you were here, like, were you guys even? Yeah, you guys would have. That would have been like the first week you were here. Um, 2 Timothy 1 verse 5 says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. So Timothy was learning even from a chi- even as a child from his, his grandmother and his mother, who were teaching him from the Holy Scriptures. And that's encouraging, or it should be encouraging, because that tells us it's never too early for us to start learning the things that the Bible has to say. Because some of you may have been around this church since you were children. Others of you may not, and and that's okay. Either one of those is okay, because the Bible was given to us to understand the things of the Lord, and we'll see more on that in a bit. But you can commit to learning the things you find in the Bible right now. No matter how old you are or what stage of life you're in, it's never too early and it's definitely never too late. And the the cool thing is the church you go to now has has a lot of resources at your disposal for learning. Uh, We have a 9 a.m. training hour we've been doing for for years. And this year we're doing a very special 9 a.m. training hour where we're doing a survey of the entire Bible, which, by the way, will really help you as you're reading through the Bible to get an idea of where you are. We have personal discipleship where you mentor with someone else one-on-one with a believer who's been around for a little longer than you who can show you the truth in the Bible and how to find that truth for yourself. We have ministry tools and training classes designed to help you be a more effective servant of the Lord. We have the Living Faith Bible Institute classes that are designed to prepare you for leadership and ministry, whatever that might look like for you. The point is, if you want to learn and you want to continue learning, you're, you're in the right place if you choose to take advantage of it. You're in a better position right now than most people will ever be because you can learn the Bible from those who have learned before and there's such a wealth of resources available to you to do that. That's the way God designed this. Remember 2 Timothy 2.2 says, "In the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Because that's the whole point. You learn so you can help others learn. And that's a good point to mention because Timothy was told to continue in the things that he's learned. So learning doesn't just stop with knowledge. It doesn't just stop with, oh, here's new information and now it's in my head. Remember the guys we saw a couple weeks ago in 2 Timothy 3.7? They were ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They weren't able to come to the knowledge of the truth because they weren't learning correctly. Because knowledge for knowledge's sake is never actually beneficial because 1 Corinthians 8.1 says knowledge puffeth up. You have to commit to learning, but you also have to commit to using what you learn for ministry. That's how you continue in the things that you learn. You don't just learn them and then check that off the list. You learn it and apply it and you live it out and you use that information. 
Like Philippians 4 verse 9 says, those thing which, things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. That's, that's the key. The things you learn, receive them, hear them, apply them, and then, and then do them. The things you learn and receive, do. Otherwise, your, your learning isn't helping you actually pursue maturity. It's not helping you continue in the things you've learned. It's not helping you grow. But if you're applying what you learn as you're learning it, well, now God can really get a hold of your life, and now God can really use you. Now you can be an effective servant for the Lord as he continues to make you even more effective as you learn and apply more and more things. So as the world gets worse and worse, well, we just need to get closer and closer to the Lord by remaining committed to learning and applying the things we find in his word. It's really that simple. That's why he gave us his word. And that's, and that's what we see in point number two, the profitable manual. And verse 16, again, remember, says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. If you've ever been to our church's summer camp, chances are good you've memorized this verse. But we're going to spend some time here in this verse tonight. Uh, we'll spend the, the bulk of our time together tonight in verse 16, specifically on the first part of this verse, the fact that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Because sometimes we tend to forget the magnitude of what God has given to us in his word. We forget how amazing it really is that we can hold the Bible in our hands. Because the Bible is our manual for life, and it gives us everything we need. When we talk about the sufficiency that God has given us, man, that that's, that's what it is. He gave us his word, and in his word we can find everything we need. It's the reason why we can be confident that God has provided us what we need, no matter what the, the times that we live in look like, no matter how perilous they might be. And we can really understand that when we look at how we came to have the Bible in our hands, and that's exactly what verse 16 is getting at. It's getting to what we've been given and how we've been given it. And Paul is explaining that the Bible was given by inspiration, so we need to make sure we understand inspiration, and that's letter A in your notes, understanding inspiration. Because if you've, ever been, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've probably heard someone say that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So what exactly does that mean? Well, notice that the verse doesn't actually say that Scripture is inspired. It says that Scripture is given by inspiration, and we'll see why that's an important distinction. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 are, are critical to understanding that distinction. 2 Peter 1, verse 20 says, Knowing this, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Don't miss this. The Holy Ghost moved when the holy men of God spake. But scripture, by definition, isn't something that's spoken. Scripture is written down. It's scripted. So what's the deal here? Is scripture, the written word of God, inspired by God? Well, when you look up a technical definition for the word inspiration, you'll notice that inspiration is the act of breathing into something. It's the opposite of expiration, which is the act of exhaling. So like you breathe in, that's inspiration. Um, you, I don't think they do this anymore, but when you do CPR and you put your mouth on them and like blow air into their lungs, you're, you're inspiring air into their lungs. Actually, the word that's translated here in, in uh, first, 
or 2 Timothy 3.16 as given by inspiration of God actually means something that is God-breathed. But we don't need human definitions to understand that. We can see that from Scripture. If you look up inspiration in Scripture, for example, Job 32 verse 8 says, But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. And so we're going to start to see some connections here. So, so pay attention because there's a couple verses and there's a few connections as we make our way through this, but it'll make sense once we dig in to all of them. So there's spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. So the spirit in man is the result of the inspiration of the Almighty. And that's a connection you can trace all the way back to the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So Adam wasn't alive until God breathed life into him. So you have inspiration connected with God's spirit. We saw that in Job 32. And you have God's breath being connected with life in Genesis 2 verse 7. And in Job 33, you have God's spirit connected with his breath. Uh, Job 33 verse 4 says, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. So you connect all these dots. God breathes life into things. He inspires them. That inspiration comes from the Holy Spirit. God gave us scripture through what holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that God gave us scripture by inspiration, So the only reasonable conclusion is that God inspired his words to be spoken by those with their their breath. He, He inspired his words to be spoken by those holy men of God before they were even written down. And that's what gives the words, the words of God life. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is quick. And the the word quick means alive. The word of God is alive. It was given life by the breath of God because it was given by inspiration. So the question is, is the Bible in your hands inspired or was that just something that happened when God originally gave those words to men as his prophets spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost? That's actually an incredibly important question because the Bible doesn't say that scripture is inspired. It just tells us it was given by inspiration. But that's where understanding inspiration also requires us to understand preservation and that's letter B. Because God doesn't just tell us that Scripture was given by inspiration. He also promised that he would preserve his words forever. And we see that in Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. It says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So the Bible tells us that God will preserve his words. And and it's very important that that's plural. and, And it doesn't say he'll preserve his word the subject of, the, of, of verse 6 is the words of the Lord. And verse 7 says, he'll keep them and preserve them from this generation forever. So not only do we know that his written words were originally given by inspiration, we know that God keeps his words through preservation. And so the question is, do you actually believe that? Do you believe that promise? Because unfortunately, most of the Christian world doesn't actually believe that. Just about everyone agrees that God inspired his words, but most people think that only the original copies were inspired because they don't believe in God's promise to preserve his words for us. In fact, if you check around on church websites, you might find their statement of faith where they tell you what they believe, and you'll probably read something that they believe that God's word was inspired in the original manuscripts or in the original autographs or something like that. 
like God inspired them the first time they were written down is, is what they're saying. Well, just forget for a second that we just studied out biblically that inspiration is spoken and not something that's written down. If God hadn't promised to preserve his words for us, well, then their way of thinking would kind of make sense. Think about it. Even if God originally inspired his words, those words were originally written down thousands of years ago in Hebrew, Greek, and a little in Aramaic. Over thousands of years, humans copied those words over and over again, making copies of copies, translating those words into Latin and eventually into English and other languages, making copies of those translations. Humans make mistakes. You remember playing telephone when you were kids? I don't know if kids still do this, where they line up and the first person whispers something into the ear of the next person and then you whisper what you heard into the next person's ear and by the time it gets to the end, it's all messed up. You start with check in the basket and you end with chicken musket and it's, it's different. You get there really quickly. Differences in language, so, so you've got the problem with the copies of copies. You've got problems with translations because differences in languages prevent you from being able to translate word for word 100% of the time. Anybody who's ever studied a foreign language could tell you that. So even if God's words were originally perfect when he inspired them, well, certainly they can't be perfect now, right? After all those years of copying by hand, by the way, the printing press wasn't invented until fairly recently compared to, the, compared to when the Bible was written, there's bound to be some errors somewhere that makes what we have today deviate from those original manuscripts. But here's the problem. Not one original manuscript of any passage of scripture still exists today. Sure, we've got some old ones that are in some museum somewhere, I'm sure. I've never seen them, but I'm sure they exist. But no one pretends to have an original copy. So if God's words were only inspired in the original manuscripts, none of God's words are actually inspired now. And so it's not the museums preserving God's inspiration if God's inspiration is only found in the original manuscripts. And that's a problem Because how could we possibly know if what the Bible says to us today is actually the words of God that were given to man thousands of years ago if we don't have the original copies to compare them to? The the answer is we don't. Well, the the biblical truth of it is that God's words were inspired when they were spoken. Remember, we saw that in 2 Peter 1.21, which says, Prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's the definition of biblical inspiration. But writing those words down, well, that's an act of preservation. And God promises to preserve his words forever. The Bible actually shows us the process of inspiration and preservation in Jeremiah 36. So don't miss this story. Go home and read this story for yourself, but we'll, we'll briefly start, start looking at it in verse number 2. Jeremiah 6, verse 32. It says, Take thee a roll of a book. God's talking to Jeremiah. It says, Take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee from the days of Josiah even unto this day. So God's saying, look, I said all these things to you. Write them down. Jump down to verse four. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. So now Baruch is writing down the words of the Lord that Jeremiah is saying. So even though God is not the one saying them to Baruch, they're still the words of the Lord. And Jeremiah is speaking them to him. And if you get down to verse 11, after, after they get written down, it says, When Micaiah, the son of 
Jemariah, the son of Shaphan, had heard out of the book all the words of the Lord. So now you have the written words of God and someone is hearing them read back to them. Well, they're still called the words of the Lord. So God speaks to Jeremiah and Jeremiah speaks with his mouth the words of the Lord. Baruch writes them down in a roll of a book and then Micaiah hears those words that were written down in the book but they're still the words of the Lord and that's the key. That's the key to understanding God inspiring his word and then preserving that through, through, through someone speaking and through someone writing them down. That's, that's what God does. And what's interesting is if you keep reading that story, the role, of the, the role of the book that Baruch wrote those words down on was actually destroyed in the same chapter. Um, you could, uh, the king didn't like what he heard from those books, or from that book, so he, he actually burnt it. But if you look down in verse 27, after he burns it, um, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, after that the king had burned the roll, and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. So the original manuscript was gone. It didn't exist anymore. But that's no big deal for God. He promised to preserve his words, so he just had them written down again. And the weird thing to wrap your mind around, look at verse 32. Uh, Then Jeremiah took another roll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah, all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. So not only does God preserve the words from the original manuscript that was lost, but he also added words to it the second time. But that's okay because God's inspiration and preservation are still valid. In fact, you could say his, word, his words got better the second time if God saw fit to add things. And that's an important thing to understand when we're trying to understand translation, and that's number three. Because translation is the other thing you have to talk about when you're talking about how we got the Bible. Because it was given to us by inspiration, but you're tracing it through preservation and through translation, through history, which is, which is hard to do. I'm not smart enough to do all that stuff. But you can see what the Bible says about that stuff and have faith enough to trust that God is powerful enough to, to preserve his words for us the way he promises, despite the fact that we have the Bible in English and it was originally written in not English. Because yes, translation of human languages is rarely a one-to-one word-for-word thing. You can ask anybody who studied a foreign language for like five minutes. That's the case because different languages don't always have words to describe the same things. So when you translate from one language to another, you want to translate in a way that communicates the same things as originally intended, but you can only use the words that are available in the language you're translating to, and that's a tricky thing. So from a purely human perspective, it makes sense for us to question the validity of Bible translations from the source languages to modern English. But when we consider God's promise to preserve his words for us, well, it becomes a different discussion. In fact, the Bible has some things to say about translation. If you look up forms of the word translation in scripture, you'll quickly see that the Bible is very careful to only use the word translation to describe something that's changing from a worse state to a better state. So whenever you see something in scripture that's translated, it always ends up being better after the translation than it was before, and that's not how we think of translation, especially when it comes to languages. You know, the, 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 we use the phrase, something got lost in translation, because, because that's what happens when you translate from language to language. You lose cultural references, you lose all this stuff. But that's not how the Bible uses the word translate. For example, look at what Hebrews 11 verse 5 says about Enoch. 
It says, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 5, you can see that Enoch was translated because he walked with God and was not. It's a very short story. I, I basically just told you the whole story. He walked with God and then he wasn't because God took him. So Enoch's translation was from an earthly state to a heavenly state with the Lord. He was translated to a better state than he was originally. You can see another example of translation in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10. It says, To translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel to, and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. So the king of Israel was translated from Saul, who was the first king, to David, who was the second. And if you know anything about those two guys, you'll know that David was an incredible improvement over Saul. David was the man after God's own heart. Saul was not. David was God's choice for Israel's king. Saul was not. The translation of the kingdom from Saul to David was a good thing for the nation of Israel. And one more example in Colossians 1 verse 13. It hits a little closer to home. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So if you've been saved, you've been translated from darkness into his spiritual kingdom. We talked a little bit about that in our Shining series in December, and that's obviously a good translation for each and every one of us who belong to the Lord. All that to say, translations in the Bible are a good thing, and the Bible is careful to only use translation to describe something that's moving from a worse state to a better state. And I think that's important to note because our understanding of translation, at least with respect to spiritual things, well, it needs to deviate from the world's understanding of it. Because sure, humans make mistakes, and one-to-one language translation is so rarely possible, especially when you're translating ancient languages to modern ones. But God promises to preserve the words that he gave to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So is it really a stretch for us to believe that God can use people who translate the Bible similar to how he used people to speak it and to write it down in the first place? Is God somehow not powerful enough to do that? Don't be ridiculous. He tells us he's going to do it. And here's something to think about too. Check out Mark, verse 15, or Mark chapter 15, verse 34. Um, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, uh, it says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Okay, put, 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 your, put your thinking caps on. You have Jesus saying something in Hebrew, in Scripture. And what he says is translated or interpreted into English for us. And when that was originally written down, the book of Mark would have been in Greek. So recorded in the pages of scripture, you see a translation from one language to another. And if all scripture was given by inspiration of God, and God promises to preserve all of his words, does that make this an inspired and preserved translation? That's something to think about. Because ultimately the point that Paul is making here in 1 Timothy 3.16 is that scripture is profitable for us because God inspired it and preserved it for us. He gave mankind his words through inspiration and he preserved those words for us. Even though translations of those words surely changed them from what they originally were, we can trust God's promise that he preserved for us the words that he wants us to have. And we can hold those words in a book. Praise the Lord. And like Troy said on Sunday, you know, we believe that God preserved his words for us today in English in the King James Bible. Maybe you agree with that, maybe you don't. But that's the faith that we have in the words of God because here's the deal, and I'll keep this very short. 
I'll try to keep this very short. If we believe that God perfectly preserved his words for us today like he promised we would, or he promised he would, then we have to face the fact that there are other more modern English translations of the Bible that are different than the King James Bible. Some places are so significantly different that they say things exactly the opposite of what the King James Bible says. Um, I have a list, and this isn't exhaustive, but there's, there's 50 verses that I've compiled in here with, with five different Bible translations, and I highlighted the differences and kind of broke them up into categories, and there, there's just like 50 or so here, and these are the ones that I would consider to be the most important just based on me looking at them. Um, it's certainly not exhaustive. The, the list goes on and on. But there's, there's a lot of changes about what the Word of God says about itself. There's verses that are completely missing from other Bible translations. Acts 8.37 is the one everybody knows. There's partial omissions where whole sections of verses are just gone. There's a lot of things that brings into question the deity of Christ in certain, in certain translations. Um, where, where Jesus says, I and my Father are one. In, in most of the other translations, he says, I and the Father are one. Um, Luke 2.33, Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Well, the other translations say his father or the child's father, and Joseph was not the child's father. The Lord, the Lord was. Um, there's some things that get confusing about, about Satan and who Satan is. Um, some of the Newer translations use the, the phrase day star to refer to Satan, which, which is something the Bible uses to refer to Jesus. So make of that what you will. Um, there's questions of, of salvation that, that can pop up from, um, can, can you be severed from Christ? Because that's a phrase that shows up in the ESV and in the NASB, um, but that doesn't show up in, in the KJV. There, there are just plain errors that are things that, that, that just can't be true. Um, Galatians 5.12 is good. I would, they were even cut off, which trouble you, saying people who trouble you, like, like I want them out of here. Um, the ESV says, I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. That's like when you cut part of your body off, guys. Anyways, um, there, there, there's just, I've got this list up here, so if you're interested, come look at it. Um, there's, there's just a bunch of places that say the complete opposite thing. Um, his ways are always grievous. Psalm 10.5 says all the, other vers- all the other versions say his ways are always prosperous, which is it, um, because both of those things can't be true. Um, and so that's the point. When you see differences like that, well, they both can't be the word of God, so which one is it? Well, you're, you're going to have to figure out which Bible version is consistent within itself in what it says because some of these differences are small. They only change the meaning a little bit. Some say entirely opposite things. Some verses are entirely removed. So they can't both be perfectly preserved words of God if they communicate different things. And if we, if we go with the King James, or we go with the King James Bible because those other modern translations say things that aren't consistent with what the Bible says in other places. So when, when, when Philippians 2 says that Jesus considered not equality with God something to be grasped in, in a different translation of the Bible. Well, that's, that doesn't line up with what the Bible says about who Jesus was because he was equal with the Father because he was God. Um, so just be aware of that. 
It's a rabbit hole you can dive down if you're interested, and I promise you that if you do, it's only going to build your faith in the words of God that he's inspired and preserved for you today, and you will be more confident than ever in the book that you're holding in your hand. It'll help you understand why the Bible is so profitable because it was inspired, given by inspiration and it was preserved for us today through copies and through translations. It's profitable because it's the words of God and we can hold it in our hands. And Paul even explained what it's profitable for. It's profitable for doctrine and doctrine's telling us what's right. It's profitable for reproof and that tells us what's wrong. So like when, when, when Cody was up here and said, you guys do this wrong with the sign-up sheets. That's, that's reproof. It's profitable for correction, and that tells us how to get right. It's profitable for instruction in righteousness, and that tells us how to stay right. So in the pages of the Bible, you can figure out what's right, what's wrong, how to fix what's wrong, and how to stay on the right course. It has everything you need for life. Every situation has an answer in the Bible, and it's, it's the profitable manual that God gave us by inspiration and preservation. It's his words that he gave us to live by, and, and it's sufficient for every area of life and for every situation, which is why 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the KJV is actually the only English Bible that uses the word study there, by the way. The other Bibles tell you to do your best to present yourself approved unto God, but they don't actually tell you how to do it. God tells you how to do it by using the word study. He wants you to study his word he wants you to rightly divide the word of truth so that you can know it and apply it in your life. And if you do that, you have what you need to be successful. He gave us everything we need in his word, so let's commit to studying it and using it. Because when we choose to do that, it sets us on a course that'll land us in verse 17, which is point number three, the perfect man. And this one will go quicker. Verse 17 again says that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And there you see the goal. The goal is to be perfect. And before we dig into what that means, don't forget that, you know, this verse says that the man of God may be perfect. And Timothy was actually the only man in the New Testament who's referred to as a man of God. Uh, we saw that actually last year in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse, verse 11, where Paul writes, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. And here in 2 Timothy 3, Paul is contrasting the man of God from the ungodly men that we've been discussing in the previous weeks in the earlier parts of this chapter. Because the man of God has the word of God and the power that comes along with that. The ungodly men don't. So they're on a much different path than the man of God is. Because God wants the man of God to reach perfection, being truly furnished unto all good works. And perfection in the Bible doesn't refer to flawlessness the way we normally use that word. Perfection refers to completion. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10, which says, but then that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So perfect is contrasted with in part or partial. And that gives us the biblical definition of the word perfect. It just means complete. So when we're talking about a person being complete, you're talking about a person being fully mature. And that's exactly what God wants for you. He wants you to be fully mature and realize your potential uh, through him. 1 Peter 5.10, uh, it makes us clear on that. It says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. 
That's what God wants for each of us, and that's why he inspired and preserved his words for us, so we can have the doctrine, the reproof, the correction, the instruction in righteousness to get us where we need to be, regardless of what the world around us is doing. So no matter how bad the world gets, God has us on a course to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Uh, Romans 8, 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So when it comes to our completion and our maturity, well, Jesus is the goal. He's our example. So we follow Jesus, and we follow him through the words of God that have been given to us, and we grow and learn with the goal of being more and more like him every single day. And we have, the goal, or we have that goal so that we can be effect, more effective servants of the Lord. Because the more like Jesus we are, well, the better job we can do as his representatives in the world. Never forget why he saved us. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Our salvation is for good works. It's to enable us to do good things for the Lord. It furnishes us to that end. So despite the declining state of the world, if we allow God to conform us to Christ through the words he gave us in the Bible, he can use us to accomplish his mission anyway. He's given us what we need to be successful. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. He gives us sufficiency, and that allows us to accomplish good works for him, no matter what else the world's doing. The Bible's sufficient for our growth and maturity in him, no matter what the conditions that we're living in are. It's what we need, and it's why our ministry at this church always focuses on the communication of Scripture, because having it is a blessing, and it's something we need to lean on and rely on to guide us, because it's sufficient for us. So if you believe that God's given us what we need, if you believe that he's given us sufficiency through his word, even in these last days, then just allow his words to get into your life every single day so that they can change you. The goal is to be like Christ, and you can't do that without reading, studying, and doing his word. We have what we need, no matter what goes on around us in the world. We go to a church that believes and trusts in the sufficiency of scripture. We go to a church that invests the word of God into people so that they can be successful ministers for him. So let's just commit to doing that. Figure out what your next step with the Lord is, and then just do it. Don't worry about what other people around you are doing. Like Cody said, you're all adults now, and you alone can control the trajectory of your life. So trust in the sufficiency of God's word and let it shape you. Refuse to let the world shape you. See it as your enemy. See the word of God as your guide and allow it to be what directs you and makes your decisions for you every single day. Let's pray. God, we're humbled and thankful for your word and, and the the amazing gift it is that you've given mankind your word by inspiration and then promised to preserve it for us today. And so, Lord, we put faith in that. We put faith in that promise that you offered us. And we trust that the words you've given us in Scripture are your words. And so, Lord, we choose to live by them. We choose to, to invest them into one another and invest them into other believers so that they can go and do the same. Um, because you've given us everything we need. You've given us sufficiency no matter what else is going on. And so, Lord, we're thankful for that. We're humbled by that and we're encouraged by that. And so I just pray that as the rest of the world goes to hell in a handbasket, Lord, I pray that we would do our job as your ambassadors. We'd let your word get into our lives so that we can shine as lights and, and keep people in the world from, from going to hell in a handbasket by representing you and sharing your gospel from your word. 
We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.